Hello, this is Dr. Gary Sherman, the Heart Guy, welcoming you to our exciting and informative podcast titled The Heart Guy Presents The Heart of the Matter, bringing you interesting discussions and conversations related to the vast and important subject of heart disease and heart failure and everything related to that in today's ever-changing world. I'm extremely honored to have as my special guest, a transplant warrior from Silver Springs, Maryland, Austin Lee. Austin is a two-time kidney transplant recipient from Living Donors. He's a patient care volunteer and PFAC, Patient Family Advisory Council member and Children's National Kidney Disease Advocate. Austin works as an early childhood educator and will tell us about his life beginning as a peritoneal dialysis patient right up through life today. Austin, welcome to The Heart Guy Presents The Heart of the Matter. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate appreciate you for having me on. It's an honor to to be a part of this podcast today and to to share with the audience that's out there today. So thank you. And um, I look forward to to being a blessing and having someone possibly take something away from this podcast. Exactly. That's why we're doing this. And and we will certainly do that with you on. So thank you for that. So Austin, now I know you grew up in Clinton, Maryland, if not mistaken. And I know I did my study and Clinton is historically known for its role in the American Civil War concerning Abraham Lincoln assassination. There's some history there where you came from. It was at the Surratt House, right? Uh, Surratt House, yeah. She was kind of blamed. That lady was blamed for, uh, in part at least, for uh, Abraham Lincoln's assassination, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. You did your homework. <laughs> but, but that but that was in the 1800s. I don't, th- I don't suppose you were a kid back then, but what was the incredibly young Austin's life like as a child? As a child, it was a lot of challenges a lot of a lot of challenges not just myself but my siblings and my parents because before i was even a child it wasn't even sure that i was supposed to be here you know from from uh physicians you know because i was i was in the military my dad was in the military i was born on a military base Mm-hmm. in Frankfurt, Germany. And so um, I didn't have much of a chance of a survival rate because of the type of kidney disease that I had. And so um, pretty much from childhood, it, it's been a fight for my life. It, it, it's always been, you know, I, I've, I've had to overcome many, many obstacles as, as a child. And my mom, you know, my mom is, is a real hero because before I was actually born, she actually push to have an ultrasound done because, you know, she, you know, she wanted to have the ultrasound of her, of her baby, you know, just a a normal picture in which they had found a mass on my stomach, which happened to be just this fluid that was building up, which happened to destroy my native kidneys. So the kidneys that you're born with, mines were destroyed on the inside of my mom's womb. Mm. which is called, which was called posterior urethral valves, which that affects one in 8,000 male infants. With that, like they, they actually were, were telling my mom, advising her to terminate her pregnancy. And so, um, you know, without her strong faith that she had, you know, I really wouldn't be here. And, and the thing is, she was so brave enough to go through the painful procedures that she had to go through in order to remove, you know, the fluid from off of me to keep me alive, which they had to take a long needle and go inside her, which was called a, a, a bladder tap, which they had to put me, they had to put me to sleep inside of her so I wouldn't move so they could drain off that fluid to have, you know, so I could live, you know, once, once I was born and my kidneys were non-functioning, if you don't, if you're not on dialysis or you don't have a transplant, there's only so long before, you know, you 
possibly pass away. And you think about being a, an infant like that. Yeah. And so, you know, just from birth, say, to about uh, seven years old, it was, it was very difficult uh, and, and, and challenging growing up because I threw up a lot as a child. I didn't learn how to walk until uh, about almost three years old. I went to a special daycare in Washington, D.C., Georgetown. And um, the way that I learned to eat was by watching other kids because evidently I would be so afraid to eat that I would be scared to vomit. And what happened was that I would just watch other kids, just watching them eat. And I was just like, oh, I guess I eat this way and I'll try this. And still to this day, I'm very picky with foods and textures and things like mm-hmm. that. It's just yeah. something that's been a part since I was a kid. Other than that, growing up with my childhood, I feel like I had a lot of support from from friends growing up in, in elementary school, middle school, and in high school. And, you know, when I received my first transplant from my mom, it actually allowed me to really blossom and live a normal, healthy lifestyle, just like every other child that was growing up with me in my neighborhood. Because I would say, and that's why I say from about from birth to seven years old, why I went through so much, because I went through a lot of hospital stays, uh, in and out, I would be in three months at a time, sometimes there there was a there was a time where they had to it was an emergency they had to call my mom because I stopped breathing and she had to rush up to the hospital because things were just you know just just going left I made it through very strong person that always pushes through and my transplant was done at Children's National in Washington D.C. so yeah my my first transplant was done at, at, at Children's National and you know just growing up in my school like in my elementary school like I was very shy like Mm-hmm. to talk about these experiences because I just wanted to be like any other kid right. in my yeah. school. like and, and even in my neighborhood, just playing basketball, even though I couldn't play football, like, you know, I would play football, but I wouldn't do too much contact because he just wanted to be like, he just wanted to be like your friends. He wanted to play, you wanted to play soccer, baseball. Yeah. He wanted to be in a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And they knew, like my friends knew, they would always say, like, I would always, always have friends that like, don't hit Austin in this kidney. He's going to get extremely upset, <laughs> you know, if you hit him in his kidney. Yeah. I'm the youngest of five, and they're very, very protective. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was able to really, when I did talk about my experiences with my first transplant as a, as a child, I did see that it was able to help other children, help other nurses and, and doctors to kind of treat um, similar pediatric patients with the same disease or, or the same situation that I had. So yeah, that was pretty much, you know, about growing up with my childhood. I will, and, and another thing I will say that even though I was dealt with kidney disease since birth, there was a lot of different opportunities, even as a child, that I was able to, to become a part of, as far as being able to go to holiday parties at Children's Hospital, being a part of that, being a part of Make-A-Wish. You know, I've, I've had Make-A-Wish from, mm-hmm. from when I was 14 years old. So although I had to overcome a lot, I was, I, I've also been blessed with a lot of opportunity. That is what kind of keeps me going and what I try to advocate and try to inspire other people. Yeah. I wanted to stop you for a second because you gave us a lot there and I thank you for that. Wow. Such an interesting childhood, but you hit on some important things that just come to mind. They sort of trigger things in me when you say things. And the first thing that I realized, because I haven't on this podcast, at least I haven't spoke to many people about children's disease in the way of heart disease or kidney disease, quite frankly, mostly um, I've dealt 
more with adult heart disease and, and kidney disease now. And the kidney disease and the lung disease is, is more new to me because I'm a heart patient and my focus in my speaking career has been congestive heart failure. So this is all fascinating to me. But I heard you say a couple of things. One is about the copying on the eating. So I have a thing where I tell people, and I, I think Tony Robbins was one of these, uh, he's a coach that most people have heard his name. But one of the good things that he's done um, is he, he talks about uh, success and how do you become successful at anything? And he's big on just find somebody who does something well, the thing that you want to do, and just copy them. And if you copy them, you'll be successful at it. And it's something that is so simple, but I think we have to go towards children to look and see how do they learn? You know, how do kids learn how to succeed in their lives? Yes. And in this case, you, you started out learning to eat by copying your friends. That was number one. The other thing that struck me was that your friends were just naturally, they knew to be empathetic for you. They knew that you were different physically and they were protective and empathetic. That wasn't something that they learned. It was just, just something that naturally they knew to do. And we're here now trying to teach adults how to be empathetic and how to listen better. And yet kids can do that naturally. So it's pretty fascinating for what you said. And then, of course, is your parents because your mother fought for you. You know, she knew uh, somehow instinctively that there was something special there and she did everything she could to save you. And then the last component was the doctors who they, they had to work hard to make sure that you survived. And they didn't do that out of financial needs. They did it because they had a mission and they had a mission to save you. So, you know, for the most part, and we can only hope that most doctors and nurses are doing things because they have the mind to do what they were supposed to do, take the Hippocratic oath and try and save children and adults. So, so there were so many lessons from you, just that, just that little 12 year old period um, that you just shared. So I thank you for that. So you can take it from there. So you were 14. Now at this point, you're starting to grow up. Had things changed at that point? Yeah. So I'm starting to grow up. I'm starting to learn a little bit about trying to have my kidney go the distance as far as like anniversaries, how long it's going to last. So I'm about 14. That's when I had, you know, I had Make-A-Wish. And actually, it's funny because my mom, uh, we never knew about like Make-A-Wish or anything like that until I, I believe it was like a social worker came into children's and they said, has he had a wish before? You know, he qualifies for a wish. My mom was like, no, I never, never even heard of it. And around that time, I was preparing to go to the transplant games. Like my, my first transplant games, being on the, the nation's capital team that we had at the time here, here in Washington, D.C. So, you know, still growing up, learning. I, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not around a lot of transplant recipients at this moment. So growing up, being 14, 15, even though I had a kidney transplant, it didn't, they did not view me as someone who was a transplant recipient, someone who was a, a, a transplant patient. They viewed me and even I view my, myself as just a regular human being who just happened to have a, a kidney transplant. Yeah, so when I was 14 years old, like I said, I was beginning to learn a little bit more about my, my kidney transplant, but at the same time, kind of becoming a little relaxed on taking the medications, you know? And then like my dad was very good at getting on me about taking my medications. And then sometimes I'll be going back and forth and the children's having to, uh, undergo biopsies because my creatinine would be going up. 
sometimes, you know, like it would be going into the twos and it was supposed to be like point eight, like one point something. And, um, you know, every now and then I would have to go back and back and forth. But around that time, uh, I went to my first transplant game uh-huh. that was, I want to say 2004, which was in uh, Minneapolis. And so I had went to my first transplant games. And then around that same time, I was able to have uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation in which the social worker at Children's actually mm-hmm. uh, presented to my mom because my mom, she hadn't known anything pretty much from, um, you know, when I was when I was a teenager going to Children's, it was just, you know, me going, making sure that I'm getting my lab done and and, and having my, you know, my, my clinic visits, but uh, anything else. And then, you know, every now and then going to a, a, a Children's, you know, holiday party and things like that. So mm-hmm. that's when, you know, I was able to go to Make-A-Wish Foundation. You know, they, they came to my house and they, they asked me, what is it that I wanted, you know, as my wish? And mm-hmm. I can remember, I, like, my first one was, like, to meet Michael Jordan. And they were like... <laughs> <laughs> that, was a big ask. that was a big ask. It was. And they were like, you know, it might take a little bit. And I think another one was, I, I think at the time it was, like, to meet, like, some famous, at the time, a famous uh, Washington Redskins player. Uh-huh. But then... They asked me, you know, was there somewhere I always wanted to go? And I said, you know, I wanted to go on a shopping spree. And uh-huh. then I was like, I wanted to go to Disney World. Yeah, so what <laughs> happened was, and I think, yeah, and I believe I wanted to go to uh, Mall of America in Minnesota. Minnesota? I've never been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And see, the fun thing about this story was that, you know, I ended up, I ended up getting to go to Disney World, all expenses paid. Wow. Yeah, it was wonderful, wonderful <laughs> experience from Make-A-Wish. They, you know, they picked yeah. me up in a limo, flew me flew me and my family to Orlando. And um, basically every park at Disney World, I got to go to the front of the line. Oh, I didn't have wow. to wait at all. So, so if you go to Make-A-Wish, your mom has to like put in an application for that? How does that work? Yeah, she did have to fill, she did have to fill out um, like an application for that at yeah. that time. It might be different now because that was back in 2003. And that's when the, the two wish granters, they're called wish granters, had came to my house and um, pretty much like just kind of asked me what I what I wanted. And I ended up getting um, it turned out that I ended up actually getting both, you know, a shopping spree and going to Disney World because I actually <laughs> was able to get fourteen hundred dollars in spending money wow. and I got to go to Disney World. And then that same summer, right after Make-A-Wish, that same summer for the transplant games, mm-hmm. I got to go to Minneapolis. And that's where that's where Mall of America was, because that's where the transplant games were. So I, I ended up getting everything in one summer, which was which was so, truly so what, what was what was your sport in the transplant games? What did you play? Uh, so my, my sports in the in the transplant games were was basketball and swimming mm-hmm. at that time. Oh yeah, no Very good for you. Good for you. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah my, my, my son loves to play my younger son loves basketball. He's a good golfer too, but he loves playing basketball more, I think. So oh, yeah. you found a way to travel while being on dialysis. That's tricky because you have to stop and go to those centers and and stop off for quite a few hours. That's not an easy you know, I travel with my LVAD and my equipment, but you know, that's not that hard really. But for yeah. you, you have to figure out sort of your itinerary on how you're going to stop off and still get to your destinations. How does that work? Okay. So when I was an infant, we didn't travel with my dialysis machine when I was an infant though, for infant and toddler, because the machine was so big, you had these big water jugs that the tubes had to run through. But when I was, when my first transplanted kidneys rejected, 
at the age of um, 17 and I had to undergo peritoneal dialysis the second time. I did travel to uh, Florida and California and Alabama. So how that actually worked was that I would have to call the, the actual company, the uh, Baxter, and I would have to call at least, I called about a month ahead before traveling and they would send my boxes, my solution, um, supplies. They would send all of that down to the hotel. And then I would have, you know, my peritoneal dialysis machine and this big old black bag and um say the Baxter company also sent this little luggage it's like a little luggage folder with like wheels that you could roll it on when i would be, you know of course with airport security you know i would have to go all the mm -hmm. time and they have to they have to open the bag they got to look through the machine oh yeah and then when I get on a plane, it's it's heavy too. It's small enough to take with you, but it is heavy. You know, I had to lift it up and I had to put it into the overhead bin. Yeah, because it has to go on a plane. You can't put it in the balloon, right. you know? No, yeah, I wasn't taking that chance. And, no, um, you can't. Not at all. And so uh challenge with that, and it was, and, and, and that time it would get depressing, was just having to alter schedules. I couldn't be out as long as everybody else could because I had to be back home to, mm -hmm. or back at the hotel to get on the dialysis machine. Sure. And wow. then also I had to always make sure everything was sterile, wiping down everything prior to setting up the machine. You got to make sure you got to put it, make sure you have a table next to your bed. But I will say I, I had a good experience being on peritoneal dialysis and, and, and traveling because of the simple fact that even though I had to do it every night, I could just hook up to the machine and then when I get off, I just throw everything away and then I can go about my day. So I didn't have to worry about going to a clinic or anything like that. Also, I had less restrictions on fluid restrictions and, and my diet as well. Mm -hmm. So although, but then although I had to, like most of the time, I couldn't be on the machine past 11. Like I couldn't go past 11 because then, you know, I had to plan it if, you're catching a certain flight, then you got to be on the machine at this certain time so you can get off at this certain time. And if you're sleeping on the tube, sometimes like I would sleep on my stomach and if I'm sleeping on the tube, that can prolong the time. Right. And so I remembered that as well. So, mm, but I had a pretty good experience traveling on first, you know. Yeah. Your attitude and the way you talk about it, you make it sound so easy. And I think a lot of healing and being able to deal with this stuff is between, between our ears. Like just seeing your eyes, and the way you are that you're just handling it with whatever you got to do it is pretty good. I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed. So now you decided to support the, the kidney transplant community. What are some of the things you're doing with regards to that? I actually just got done doing a pediatric kidney disease panel for a team for National Kidney wow. Foundation, um, Illinois. And, and that was a, a wonderful experience because I was able to, to be on a panel where I can kind of share my experiences and kind of give some of the some advice on what what I went through as a as a teenager with uh, kidney disease, and then also being able to be a mentor for other um, young pediatric patients in the in the DMV through Children's National, and also right now I'm doing a project for uh, American Association of Kidney Patients, um, a mentorship program where, you know, I kind of, I, I mentor people once a month or the, I want to say I have about two more months left on who, who may be on dialysis or who, who may be on the verge of receiving a kidney transplant. That has been wonderful. Yeah. Just various, uh, Capitol Hill meetings, you know, when, uh, you know, pre-COVID and, all, and also advocating for, you know, the immuno bill and, and having a prescription immunosuppression 
drug cover, mm-hmm. you know, past the, the right. life of a transplant, which I feel is so, so very important. And having yeah. transplant organ uh, last as, as long as, as it can. And those medications are expensive too. Very yeah. expensive. And you have to find sometimes if you're not very educated, you just have to find different um, loopholes on how to pay for these type of things because there is help out there. It's just, you just have to find it. You've got to find it and you've got to be a research. That's right. You're going to be, I mean, obviously you're going to help a lot of people as a patient. You help others on the outside. Most people think it's the other way around. And we, and we do need the support as patients. You know, we need good people around us. You obviously had a good mom and she was going to do anything she can. With regards to that, you talk a little bit about mental health and kidney transplant survival. And I think that that mental health extends from the patients to their caregivers as well. Can you describe the adjustments that you had to make as a person living with kidney disease and even the adjustments that your, your folks had, had to make, you know, with the young person in the family with the kidney disease? Being honest with myself, and I talk, I talk about this, this is a great subject because I talk about this with my, with my brother. Understanding, I understand that I'm extremely fortunate and, and blessed. And at the same time, like I want to always remain humble, but I, I need, sometimes I have to bring myself back to reality that I am still a transplant recipient, meaning that like, I just can't live my life just how, however, you know, I have to do things the right way, the healthy way. And that was a, that's a talk that me and him always kind of have, you know, because it's a lot of people of, of, around me, friends, family, you know, they, they just see me as another one of them, like they know, like I have my story, but they always just want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. Take care of myself because kidney disease is a silent killer. And one of the things that I've that I've gotten better with over the years is that like, if I don't feel well, telling people. And, you know, that's one of the yeah. things that I kind of struggle with because like, I would not want to say anything because I just always wanted to just push through, push through. Right. And, uh, and I've gotten, I've gotten much better at just like, you know, humbling myself that, hey, you know, if you don't feel good, call your mom, call a friend, call people from your mm-hmm. church and let them know, you know, if you need somebody to, to, to help take you to the emergency room, you, you need someone to talk to while you're in the hospital, you know, just let them know. Don't try to handle it all on your own. Those are some of the experiences that have helped uh, change me for the better. It's just, you know, just understanding where I'm at with, with my health and, um, and and being able to, to to cope with it in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we call it stoicism. That's the fancy word for it. You know, it's not complaining. I, I spent a long time as an adult not complaining about my symptoms. And it was the biggest complaint that my nurses and doctors had about me because I'd wait too long sometimes before I tell them there was a problem. And, you know, at that point I was putting myself at risk and making it tougher for them. So it's just because I didn't want to complain, you know, and we feel we're responsible to work and to take care of our family members. But at the same time, sometimes we just have to, you know, tell people how we're feeling so we can get the help we need. So nothing bad will happen. But I just think that's something we have to learn to do, like you suggest. Very interesting stuff really is. So you you live with your folks now or you're on your own? What are you doing at this point? Yeah, so I, I live I live on my own. I'm in I'm from I grew up in Prince George's County. Clinton, Maryland. But now I live in Silver Spring, Maryland, part of the, the DMV, DC, Maryland, and, and Virginia, in which I'm literally like about uh, five minutes from DC and uh, about 15 minutes from Virginia, because I live right next yeah. to 
kind of close to downtown. Well, I live in downtown Silver Spring, but I'm close to Washington, D.C. So yeah, I'm from the metropolitan area. Um, I, I was born, you know, I was born in Frankfurt, Germany, um, military. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've, I've grown up in, in, in the DMV area pretty much my, my whole life. Yeah, interesting. Austin, this has been a great honor to have you as a guest on The Heart of the Matter. Thank you so much for sharing such a personal story as someone with such selflessness and who finds a way to positively contribute to your local community and certainly our global do- organ donorship community. And on behalf of myself and our listeners, I thank you so much for all you've done there in Maryland and in the global community. I know you're going to do a lot more things. You're just getting started because you're a young person, but you're just getting going and you're so de- dedicated to your work as an educator also and a volunteer. I know you teach. Um, I've seen some pictures of you with the kids and I can tell you love being around those kids. Yes, I do. I do. (laughs) They bring me a lot of joy. I have um, so much, so much uh, sympathy for, you know, when they get hurt because it's just like, I know kids can't really um, express themselves without crying. That's why, you know, I know how to deal with them so well on, you know, social emotional level. Yeah. It's, that's great. And they're lucky to have you. Thanks for sharing this time with us. I hope we can do it again soon. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely circle back and do this again. I'm having a great time meeting such wonderful young people in our community that are doing so much for the the global health community. It's not only people that are older, it's people that are young like yourself. I'm meeting great people that are doing good things and they're just getting started. We'll do it again. So that is our podcast for today. Please join me, Dr. Gary Sherman, the heart guy, next time for another intriguing, informative, and entertaining conversation. Please visit our website at www.drheart2heart.net. That's D-R-H-E-A-R-T, the numeral two, H-E-A-R-T.net for upcoming podcasts or if you'd like me to host an online presentation for your group or organization if you'd like to be a guest on the heart guy presents the heart of the matter podcast please email me at the heart speaks at gmail.com our podcast can be found on apple itunes iHeartRadio, google podcasts and spotify you just have to search the heart guy and until next time this is dr gary sherman the heart guy wishing you peace and hope